0: Those were the words of the Queen of Sheba, was it not? The half has not yet been told me. I also want to mention, so glad to have and see Brother Eddie and Sister Betty Huff back. I told them not just back, but back home. So they've been down in Florida for a few weeks, so we're glad to have them return. Uh, last week we spoke to you from Revelation chapter 1. And I'd like to go back to that chapter this morning, Lord willing. We looked at uh, actually about the first eight verses. Of this book. The word revelation literally means to unveil, it means to make manifest. And I've kind of thought about it like uh, if you went to an art show and they had a very well known, famous uh, piece of art there that you really wanted to see, when you got there, they had a covering over it. And at the proper time, someone just took that covering off, and for the first time, you could see what that piece of art that you'd heard about looked like. And so in the book of Revelation, the Apostle John, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, is going to unveil the Lord Jesus Christ, going to manifest the Lord Jesus Christ in a very special manner, a special way. Uh, This book was written to encourage the seven churches of Asia, specifically at that particular time. But it was also a book that was written to encourage the saints of God throughout the generations, throughout the centuries. This world we live in can be discouraging It's easy to get discouraged. It's easy to get down in the valley, etc. But these seven churches, those who made up these seven churches, were going through sufferings and persecutions because of their discipleship. That's a different type of suffering than what we might normally consider. You can suffer for various things. But if you are a true follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and want to walk in His footsteps, there's going to be times that you may have to suffer for His namesake. Now, we've been living a day and age which we haven't experienced very much of that, but the time is beginning to change, is it not? There's a lot of anti-Christ spirit here in this world, and the Lord's people may face some very serious tests in the days ahead. But these seven churches needed to be encouraged, and the book of Revelation was given to them, written about 95 A.D., uh, the Apostle John, as we will see in verse 9 here this morning where we will start, is on the island called Patmos. And let's just start there in verse 9. It says, I, John, and this is kind of unusual because this apostle that God called to write this book here wrote the Gospel of John. But he never identifies himself in the Gospel of John like this, I, John. But he does identify himself in that gospel in a very unique way because he's the one that he speaks about, that leaned upon Jesus' breast. When you study those various expressions, uh, it will become clear that John's talking about himself. Then he wrote 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. And nowhere in there does he say, I, John. But here when he says, I, John, to these people, it means a lot more than just a name. Because they would have known that the one who's writing under them was not just I, John, he was the Apostle John. He walked with the Lord Jesus Christ for three and a half years. He had special experiences with the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who was on the mountain of transfiguration along with his brother James and also with uh, Peter. Um, They were together at the household of Jairus when he raised the daughter of Jairus from the dead. And so this is a a man who was well known. Again, one of the twelve apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we notice here that John doesn't mention any of that. He doesn't mention, I'm the Apostle John, right unto you. Or I'm the one who leaned on Jesus' breast is writing unto you. He just says, I, John, a brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. John did not want himself to be looked at as being above anyone else. He says, I'm a brother, in this case, in tribulation. Now, the word brother in the Bible, in the four Gospels, oftentimes has reference to just natural relationships. And sometimes it speaks about uh, a Jewish man and a Jewish man, all Jewish people considered one another to be brothers. But the word brother is used after that in a very special way. We call each other brother and sister in Christ for a reason. Because we have a kinship, a spiritual kinship, that is stronger and greater than our natural kinship. Uh, The first time this is used really in this manner is in Acts chapter 9, when Paul, who then was known as Saul of Tarsus, was on the Damascus road. And he was going to Damascus to persecute the Lord's children. He had letters of authority to do so. But on that road, you're going to find where God struck him down at the midday hour. And uh, then we find where the Lord, working on both ends of the line, working ahead with a man named Ananias in Damascus, Tells him that there's a man coming that he is to interact with, and he tells him two things about this man. He tells, Behold, he's a chosen vessel unto me, and number two, Behold, he prayeth. The fact that he was a praying man told Ananias something special about this man. See, the natural man doesn't pray. An unregenerate man has no desire to communicate with God, period. In fact, in his heart, Psalms fourteen one says the fool is said in his heart that there is no God. But he said, Behold he prayeth, but also he's a chosen vessel unto me, let Ananias know that he's one of my children. So how did Ananias address himself whenever they got together in Damascus? He reached out his hand and said, Brother Saul. Now this brother Saul's going to call brother Paul in Second Peter chapter three. When Peter talks about Paul's writings, he says that some of Paul's writings are hard to be understood. He calls him Brother Paul. He was called Brother Saul and then (laughs) Brother Paul. And Paul oftentimes referred to the different ones as a brother, as a brother in Christ. It was not his biological uh, brother. Uh, He referred to Timothy and Titus in two ways. He referred to them as his sons in the faith. And he also referred to them as being a brother in the Lord. And so that's a special. That's a special name, is it, or a special uh, phrase that we have that we express ourselves one to another as a brother and sister in Christ. So he says, "I John, a brother." Now he's also a brother in tribulation. He's saying, "You're going through tribulation. I'm going through tribulation." The Isle of Patmos was a penal colony of the Roman Empire. It's where the authorities would banish people and put them, uh, you know, out there in, in a prison on this island. This. Isle of Patmos was about 30 miles in circumference and about 40 miles, 50 miles from the seven churches of Asia and especially from the church at Ephesus which Paul, uh, John will be the first of these seven churches John will send this letter to. So I and John, a brother and companion the word companion means partaker he says I understand what you're going through I just didn't hear about this I'm not on this island on vacation and I got this email saying that you're going through a lot of stuff He says, I know what you're going through. I'm going through it as well. I'm a brother in tribulation and also a companion, a brother and companion in tribulation, and also in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. Now, if you was here last Sunday, of course, we spoke earlier, I mean, uh, above verses, and one of them goes like this. On him that loved us and washed us from our sins and made us kings and priests unto God. There's three things the Lord had done for them that he wanted them to understand. The Lord had loved them. The Lord had washed them. And he loved them before he ever washed them. And then he made them kings and priests unto God. You are a king and a priest unto God today being a born again child of grace. Born again child of God. You're a king from the standpoint that the spirit of the king dwells with inside of you. And that spirit has the same power of our omnipotent Christ, enabling you to overcome the things of this world. And you're a priest from the standpoint that even we're not in the Old Testament day of making animal offering sacrifices, we do make sacrifices in the household of God. Romans 12, 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. That's what we're doing this morning. You're making a living sacrifice here this morning to the God of glory. So you see how important that is. In Hebrews chapter uh, 13, we're told that we offer the sacrifice of praise, even the fruit of our lips, to honor the Lord. So he's made us kings and priests. He says, I'm your brother and companion in tribulation, and also in the kingdom and patience of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to labor with patience, and with patience we're waiting for the king to come back. We're waiting for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he tells he's in the Isle of Patmos, and he's there for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's why he's been banished to this island. For the word of God and for the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, he, this man wrote the Gospel of John. This man wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So for the word of God and for the testimony he had of the Lord Jesus Christ, we find that John has been put on this island. Now the details of how he got put on the island, when he got put on the island, how he got off the island are not given to us. But at this time here, he's on this island... And he's there for the Word of God and for the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now I'm going to tell you, it's a wonderful thing to be in the Spirit any day. okay? But the Lord's day is a special day. When he says the Lord's day here, he's talking about this day, the first day of the week. The Lord's day was associated with the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. you look in Mark chapter 16, at the end of that you'll find where it says in the Lord... Uh, was resurrected, of uh, the disciples came early in the morning on the Lord's Day after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 16 and 1, Paul said I, uh, as I've given order to the church of Galatia, even so do I unto you upon the first day of the week that every one of you lay aside as God has prospered him. That's 52 days of the year that we're to consider how the Lord has prospered us. And on that day, this day, we're to give thought, we're to give prayer, we're to look at our situation and thank God for what he's done for us. And then we are to honor him with our substance and the first fruits of our increase uh, according to Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 9. And that's the first day of the week when the saints would assemble on the first day of the week. If you Look in Acts chapter 20 and verse 7 you find where the disciples had met on the first day of the week for the breaking of bread and Paul met with them. And, and I just want to throw this in. And it says he continued his speech unto midnight. Now, I continue my speech usually to midday. But I've never continued my speech to midnight. So I do have some leeway there, right? So I don't intend to go to midnight, but I might go past midday. Paul went to midnight. And, of course, this is the chapter where the man fell out of the loft. and <laughs> took him up as dead. Uh, and then after they got all that settled, it says Paul continued talking to the break of day. Uh, Paul uh, had a lot of endurance, I'd say, but the Lord gave him special grace on those occasions. But anyway, the first day of the week, that's the, in recognition of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the saints of God began to meet. That was a change from the Saturday day Sabbath that the Jews were used to prior to the coming of Christ who fulfilled the law to a jot and to a tittle. So he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. I wonder if it is to have the presence of the Lord with us, to fill His Spirit in the house of God. The house of God needs Spirit-filled preaching, and the house of God needs Spirit, Spirit-filled people filling those pews who are filled with the Spirit. As Paul said in Ephesians chapter 5, he says, Be not ye drunk with wine wherein it is excess, but being filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in your heart to the Lord. Uh, I thought the spirit was here this morning in the song service. I enjoyed the uh, spirit-filled song service this morning, and I uh, believe this prayer, Brother John, was fervent. I believe it was, was a, a, a spirit-led prayer, and I hope and pray the Lord will bless us this morning for some spirit-filled preaching. So he says he was in the Lord, he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. That put him in a pretty good position, didn't it, to be in the spirit on the Lord's day? And he says. And, uh, and heard, now here's something that he heard. Here's where he was at. Here's what he heard. He heard behind him a great voice as of a trumpet. Now he didn't say he heard a trumpet. He said he heard a voice, a great voice as of a trumpet. Now I know what a trumpet sounds like. And I know what a voice sounds like. And so I'm trying to think of what a voice like a trumpet sounds like. I know this way, thing. It was a voice that got his attention. And a trumpet was used uh, throughout Israel's history for particular reasons. Uh, you go back. Remember when Joshua and them went around the city of Jericho one day, one time a day for six days. On day number seven, around seven times on, you know, around the city. And on the seventh day, there were seven priests who had seven uh, trumpets made out of ram's horns, and they blew those trumpets of ram's horns, and the walls come tumbling down. In the seventh chapter of the book of Judges, we read of Gideon. And Gideon had 300 men, and Israel was in captivity in the bondage. And those 300 men, in one hand, they had a vessel with a light in it. In the other hand, they had a trumpet in it. And when uh, Gideon gave the signal, they shouted with a great shout. They broke the vessel. The light did shine, and they blew with a the trumpet. They blew with the trumpet. That trumpet was used by Israel in many different places, many different uh, times. Numbers chapter 10, verse 1, God instructs Moses... To make two silver trumpets of a whole piece thou shalt make them. Silver is typical in scriptures of being uh, represented that which is pure. Just like the word of God is pure. You read in Psalms 12, 6, and 7. For the word of God is uh, is pure. As like silver tried in the furnace of earth, purified seven times, thou shalt preserve them, O Lord, from this generation forever. This word here is pure. These trumpets here were two trumpets made out of one piece of pure silver... And they were blown, one trumpet would be blown for one thing, another trumpet blown for another thing. And how those trumpets were blown uh, would, indi- would give indication to Israel what they were to do. They sometimes when the trumpet was blown, they would assemble together. Another time the trumpet blown, then they were to, to march, etc. etc. And Paul brings that to our attention in 1 Corinthians 14, when he's dealing with the talk, speaking in tongues issue. He said, If the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who should prepare himself for the battle? If the trumpet gives an uncertain sound. In other words, if somebody's blowing the trumpet, and don't know how to blow it. (laughs) If it gives an uncertain sound. If it makes a sound, and you don't know what kind of sound it is, then how are you going to prepare yourself for the battle, you see? When the Lord comes again, you know a trumpet's going to be used in that, don't you? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it says, For the Lord Jesus Christ shall descend from heaven with the sound of the trumpet, the voice of God, and a shout. And those in Christ shall rise first. First Corinthians chapter fifteen, he says, "Behold, I show you mysteries: and all sleep, which shall be changed in a moment, the twinkle of an eye. At the last trump, there will be the sound of the trump." He's in the spirit on the Lord's day, and he hears a voice like that of a trumpet. Isaiah fifty-eight one says, "Lift up thy voice like a trumpet." That's a picture of the gospel preacher. The gospel preacher, you know, sometimes they talk about, but um, he's blowing that gospel trumpet. <laughs> That just means he's blowing with a sound that you can understand. It's a certain sound, a sound you can comprehend, a sound you can understand. It's a sound uh, that uh, gives you the assurance of your salvation. It's a sound that gives uh, honor and praise and glory to God. It's a sound that points you to the victory that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he heard this. He's in the spirit on the Lord's day. heard the sound of a great voice like a trumpet. A great voice. Have you ever said uh, have you ever told somebody about somebody else? Say, well, you know, they got a great voice. I, I hear them singing. I tell you, it's so beautiful. They just got a great voice. That's how man usually uses the word great, you know, uh, in, in these terms. But when John speaks about the great voice here, it's a little bit different. Now, in John 7 46, it said, concerning the Lord and Jesus Christ, never man spake like this man spake. It'd be interesting, I suppose. I have a curiosity, like most everybody else does. It'd be interesting to me if I could hear actually the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ, to hear kind of how his voice sounded when he was here 2,000 years ago. Uh, Thankfully, I can recognize voices. So a lot of times people call me and they just start talking to me and they don't even tell me who they are. You know, I kind of hate to respond to somebody if I don't know for sure who they are. But thank the good Lord, I can recognize voices uh, in in general. But if I don't recognize who they are, and I just hate to stop and say, you know, I hate to say this, but who are you? Uh, Let me tell you, it's just a good thing you call somebody. uh, Tell them who you are when you start talking. They may not know who you are, but the people just assume I know who they are. I may not have talked to them in a year, but if they call me, they just assume I know who they are. Well, that's not the case. But the Lord Jesus Christ's voice is great for different reasons. In the 33rd Psalm, we find where he speaks about creation. He says, I spake, and it was done. I commanded, and it stood fast. Go to Genesis chapter 1, and you'll find where it says, And God said ten times. And every time the Bible says God said, whatever he said, it came to pass. And the voice that spoke the world into existence. And then uh, look over here in the book of John chapter 5, verse 25. And the Lord Jesus Christ said, verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto you, The hour is coming, and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God. And they that hear shall live. Every person that's ever been born to the Spirit of God and ever will is born to the Spirit of God exactly the same way. It is not by hearing the voice of the preacher. It is not by hearing the voice of mother and father and brother and sister or anybody else. It's by hearing the voice of the Son of God. You've already heard the words of the Son of God, several of them. I've already quoted you the words of the Son of God from various places. I just did in John five twenty-five. That's the words of the Son of God. People are not born again by the words of the Son of God. They're born again by the voice of the Son of God. The voice speaks and life is given, just like it was when he came to the grave of Lazarus. He said, Lazarus, come forth. I'd say that was a great voice, wouldn't you? Lazarus heard the voice, responded to the voice, obeyed the voice, and he came forth right out of that tomb, just like the Lord told him to do. Lazarus, come forth. There was no hesitation. There was no delay. It happened immediately. And that's what happens in the work of new birth. There's no hesitation. It happens immediately. When God calls a person out of a state of death and sin to a state of life in Christ, He bores them with the Spirit of God because He speaks with a great voice. I want to ask you a question this morning. If you believe in the resurrection, I trust that you do, and you believe in the second coming of the Lord and Jesus Christ, which I know that you do, that certainly makes up our articles of faith, how do you think your body's getting out of the grave? When the Lord comes again, and he's going to take you to glory. How is your body going to get out of the grave? The Lord explained that three verses later from where I just quoted John 5.25. He moves down to John 5.28. He says, Marvel not at this, what I've been telling you. For the hour is coming when are in the graves shall hear his voice. It's going to take the voice of God to get your body out of the grave. The voice of God will speak and your body will hear and it will be resurrected and come right out of that grave. It takes the same power to get your body out of the grave. It did to get your soul out of a state of death and sin to a state of life in Christ. It takes the same power, the great voice, of the life-giving voice of Jesus Christ to born you again is going to take to get your body out of the grave, out of the cemetery, His second coming at the end of time. The voice of the Son of God does both. It's a life-giving voice, in other words. And then when he preached and he taught here in this world, again, we go back to John seven forty-six. after he got through preaching, now some of them, their response was this. Never man spake like this man spake. He stoke, spake in a way that astonished the people. They were astonished at his teaching. They were astonished at his preaching. They were astonished at his doctrine that he spoke. Now He heard a great voice. And yet this great voice is spoken of in the experience of Elijah as a still small voice. <laughs> That's how great God's voice is. So he heard this voice, a great voice of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega. Alpha and Omega is the first and last verses of the Greek alphabet. The alphabet's made up of letters. You use letters to make words. So what's Jesus called in 1 John 5, 7? There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, capital W, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. In John's gospel, in the opening chapter, chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by him, without him was not anything made that was made. See, He is the Word. In other words, Jesus Christ is God's communication with His people here on this earth. He's our mediator between God uh, and man. He, he's in between. There's one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. He is the Word, the living Word. And Hebrews 1 and 1 tells us that God who had sundry times in divers manner, spake in times past and followed by the prophets, has spoken in His last days by His Son. Uh, sometimes you might speak about somebody as being a great communicator. No one has ever communicated like Jesus. Jesus can communicate with the dead as well as the living. Never man spake like this man spake. He's Alpha. He's Omega. He's the first. He's the last. He says, what thou seest. Now, we, we've noticed what he heard. Now we're going to see what he saw. What thou seest, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia under Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamos, and under Thyatira, under Sardis, under Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. That's his responsibility. He should take what he's heard, what he's seen, he should write it in the book. This will be by divine inspiration. This will not be John's ideas, John's thoughts, John's philosophy, John's, uh, you know, uh, uh, whatever he might think. Sometimes people, uh, you know, <laughs> kind of, uh, they'll express themselves in this kind of way, and I don't think they really understand what they're saying. We'll be talking about a Bible subject. And they'll say, well, in my opinion, the Bible is not a book of opinions, my friends. The Bible's not a book of opinions. The Bible is a book of truth. Or the way that I see it, it's not based on how you see it. Not based on how I see it. It's not based upon my opinion. It's based upon what God's beloved word says. That's what it's based on. And so, we don't need to start drawing conclusions about anything based upon our opinion about how we see it. When we study a Bible subject, we study the subjects in the Bible from the first thing it said about it to the last thing about it, said about it, before we ever draw any conclusions. Now, he's going to write these by divine inspiration. He's going to send it to seven real, literal churches that existed in that day and age who were made up of people just like you. That's what a church is it's a band, a collection of baptized believers. Who have made a profession of their faith, that believe that they are sinner by nature, sinner by practice, and they believe that Jesus Christ is a Savior of sinners, that Jesus Christ uh, has saved them eternally from their sins, and now they want to walk in a pathway of discipleship and have fellowship with the Savior by being obedient to his blessed word and keeping his commandments, his ordinances, he left them in the gospel church. That's what the church was all about. Everything's called a church is not a church. We won't, we won't sidetrack into that. That'll be for another time. So here are seven real churches, and I turn to see the voice that spake with me. Now, I've never seen a voice. Have you? <laughs> but, uh, of course, he's act- what he's saying here is he turned to see who, who, wh- where the voice come from. <laughs> Sometimes people want to make fun of what the Bible says. Well, uh, he's just, I think when people with common sense can figure this out, don't you? I turn to see the voice, the one that spake with me. And he says, I saw seven golden candlesticks. Now, we're not left to guess about this. At the end of this chapter, the Lord's going to tell you the seven golden candlesticks are represent of the seven churches of Asia that he's writing this letter and going to send it to. And it's interesting, they're called candlesticks. The first time you read about a candlestick in the Bible is over here in the book of Exodus, where Moses is giving instructions to the children of Israel how to build the tabernacle, what's to go inside the tabernacle, and there's seven pieces of furniture in that tabernacle. One of them is a golden candlestick. In fact, it's got, uh, it's got a main stem, and there's three branches here and three branches here to make seven in total. They were to be lit with pure olive oil, so they never went out. These lights were to never go out. And these lights were set over here on the south side, and on the north side was a table of shoe bread, which is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ as the living bread. And the golden candlesticks, the light they you know, gave forth would shine on the table of showbread over here. Isn't that what the gospel church is supposed to do? Isn't the Lord's church supposed to be a light in this world? Isn't that what Jesus said in uh, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 14? He said, let your light so shine before men they might see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Ephesians 5, 8 says, for you were sometimes darkness, but now are you light in the Lord? Walk ye therefore as children of light. If we're going to have fellowship with Jesus Christ, we've got to walk in the light. Somebody says, I want to have fellowship with God. I want to be close to God, but I want to live my life any way I want to live it. You'll never do it then. You will never do it. You cannot walk in darkness, and darkness represents the evil and wickedness of this world. It represents all that which is contrary to the teachings of God's Word, and you cannot walk in that and embrace that and have a close walk with God over here. It's just amazing to me how people say that. I hear people on television talk about it all the time. I hear people on television talk about their faith, and yet I know they're embracing things like abortion. You can't support abortion, embrace abortion, and think you're going to walk close with God. It's just not going to do it. And I can go into a lot of other things here. In our relationships, one kind or another, you cannot embrace them, you cannot support them, get involved in them, and say, well, i got a close walk with God. I know better. I know you don't. First John chapter 1, the Lord Jesus Christ represents as the light. And then he says, If any man say he has fellowship with God and walk in darkness, that man's a liar and he doesn't have fellowship with the Lord. So we see these seven golden candlesticks represent, you know, the churches, my friends, of the Lord Jesus Christ who let their light shine here in a dark world in which we are to live here. Okay, see, so saw the seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, one likened to the Son of Man. Now, he's going to talk about the seven golden candlesticks, the seven churches later. This letter is going to be given to these seven churches, and the Lord is going to make an inspection of these seven churches, which is uh, given to us in chapters 2 and 3. But I am going to look at a little word here, a little five-letter word, midst, M-I-D-S-T. That's a very important word. It's a significant word. The first time it's used in the book of Genesis. Chapter 2, you're going to find where the Lord tells Adam he can eat of every tree in the Garden of Eden except one. It's a tree of good and evil. And in contrast to the tree of good and evil, there's another tree called the tree of life. And it says in the midst of the garden. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. The tree of knowledge of good and evil was not. This comes back to our attention over here in Revelation chapter 20. when He says verse 1, I saw a pure river of water, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God, and in the midst of it and on either side of it was what it was the tree of life you got the tree of life in genesis 2 you got the tree of life in genesis 20 no excuse me revelation 20 now i want you to start getting a picture here when the nation of israel came across the red sea the bible says israel crossed in the midst of the sea as he walked through the midst of the sea, the walls of water was on each side. God sent a strong east wind and blew the water to each side and opened a passageway to walk through the midst of the sea. When God spoke to Moses earlier in the third chapter of Exodus, he spoke to him out of a burning bush. He says, As The voice of God, the voice of the angel, came out the midst of the bush. That's the middle. The midst is the middle. We come to the New Testament. In Luke chapter 2, after the Lord Jesus Christ at the age of 12 years of age is left by his parents in Jerusalem, they go a day's journey before they recognize they don't have him with them. And they turn around to go back to find him. It takes them three days to locate him. And when they locate him, here's what it says in Luke 2. It says they found him in the midst of the doctors and the lawyers asking them questions. When Jesus was in the ship in the first storm, recorded in Matthew chapter 8, the Bible says when the ship was in the midst of the sea. It wasn't just near the shore. They're right in the middle of the sea. Matthew 18, 20, the Lord Jesus Christ said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. That chapter has to deal with offenses. When you're going to talk to somebody, about something real serious that you are involved in you may have been aff- offended or whatever before you ever get to this point by the way there's three steps to take be taken but it says where two or three are gathered together in my name where is the Lord? He's in the midst isn't he? when the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified there were three people crucified two thieves and the Lord where was the Lord at? Was he on the side? Jesus the thief, thief? Well, thief, thief, Jesus, where was Jesus? Jesus was in the midst, wasn't he? Seven days later, when Christ, is he's resurrected, seven day later, days later, he appears with his disciples behind closed doors. He said he appeared in the midst. You say, Brother Lawrence, what is your point? I hope you've already got it. The Lord Jesus Christ should not be on the outer edge of your life. The Lord Jesus Christ should be right in the middle and everything you do should be centered around the Lord and Jesus Christ. I like to think about it like a wagon wheel. A wagon wheel, you've got the rim on the outside. you got a hub in the middle. And from the hub to the outer rim, you got spokes. Now, these spokes to me represent important things in your life, important things in my life. I want to know where the Lord is. Is the Lord a spoke or is the Lord the hub? In the Lord's church, I, I, I like this a lot of times. It's like a dartboard. In the middle of that dartboard, you've got a bullseye about like this. Everybody tries to hit the bullseye, right? <laughs> Around the bullseye is another little ring. Around that's another ring. Around that's another ring. In the Lord's church, the, the faithful, the committed, the reliable, the ones you can really depend, depend upon are in that bullseye. Then you got a layer right around it, pretty dependable, most of the time dependable. You know, count them as a rule, but maybe not every time. Then you got another round that, and I'm trying to do my best all the time, whether it appears to or not. I'm trying to do the best I can all the time, personally, publicly, from the pulpit, out here, whatever, trying to get everybody I possibly can to keep moving to the middle. Wouldn't it be wonderful? If every member of the church, if every family, my friends, every lover of the Lord Jesus Christ was in that middle, (laughs) where is the Lord in the wagon wheel of your life? Is he on the outer side over here somewhere? Is he one of those spokes? Oh, the Bible's important, all right, but it's just a spoke over here. Oh, I I love the church. The church is really important, but, you know, where's it at? It's a spoke over here. No, it needs to be the hub. All these other things are important things, but they all center around the hub. The Lord Jesus Christ is in the midst. That word midst is used all these times, and I just scratched the surface with it for a reason. For a reason. He's in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Before John's going to talk about the churches, he's going to talk about Jesus. Okay? So what does he see? He sees him as the Son of Man. In verse 15, And in the midst of the seven golden cow sticks, who was unlike to the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his foot, and girdled about the paps with a golden girdle. You're going to have a picture here of a glorified Christ. And by the way, when the Apostle John heard this voice like a trumpet, it had been 60 years since he heard the voice of Jesus Christ walking the shores of Galilee. Sixty years before this, John walked with the Lord and heard him teach, heard him preach, and heard his voice. But not like this in Revelation 1. Not like a trumpet. It has been 60 years since the Lord Jesus Christ was seen by the Apostle John and the other apostles. Sixty years. When John saw him 60 years prior to this, he saw him looking like an ordinary Jewish man. He dressed like an ordinary Jewish man. I know that he had the appearance of a Jewish man because in John 4 when he's at the well, Jacob's well there um, and he meets with the uh, Samaritan woman, she'd never met him before, never seen him before. She didn't know who he was, but she knew he's a Jew. She says, how is that thou being a Jew asking me to give water unto thee, seeing the Jews and Samaritans have no dealings with each other? That's how John saw him. That's not how John sees him now. I want to see Jesus in his humanity. I do. I want to see him in his humanity. But thank God I want to see him in his glory. Notice here, he's clothed with a garment down to the foot and cut about the paps with a golden girdle. This is a, a reminder of them of the priest in the Old Testament day. If you go to Exodus chapter 28, you're going to find where God specifies specifically how the high priest is to be dressed. I mean, he gives specific details of the garments of the high priest. If that high priest went in to offer uh, a sacrifice to God without this garment on, he was struck dead. The Lord Jesus Christ has his garment all the way down to the foot. And I believe this is a picture also of his righteousness. Uh, you know, we, our righteousness is like what? Isaiah 64 tells us, our righteousness like filthy rags in his sight. Well, I'm saying this garment is not a, a garment of filthy rags. This is a glorious garment. This is a garment that goes all the way down to it. It's the garment, my friends, of the perfect life of Christ and His righteousness. And He's girded about the paps with a golden girdle. Not just any kind of girdle, but a golden girdle. It's kind of, uh, it was used uh, by the Jewish men you know, to, to, keep, uh, to keep the garment from being under the feet where they trip on the garment like a man wears a belt. To you know, tighten it up and keep it... Uh, you know, so he doesn't trip over, his, <laughs> trip over his pant legs like I've seen some do. I'm telling you the truth. I don't know how they walk. I mean, they walk like this, and one hand's back here with their pants, pulling them up all the time. I, it's amazing to me how that can be uh, comfortable. It's amazing to me how that can be uh, whatever, fashionable. If he takes that to be fashionable, brother, I'm never going to be fashionable. I can tell you that now. So he's girded about with a golden girdle, dressed properly. Then it says, His hair and his hairs was white like wool. That's a a picture of the eternality of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's eternal. He's from everlasting to everlasting. In the book of Daniel, he's spoken of as the ancient, capital A, the ancient of days. In the book of Micah, chapter 5 and verse 2, he's spoken of here as being from from days of old, even from eternity. He is eternal the eternal Son of God. Also, white displays uh, 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 knowledge and wisdom, and certainly Christ's wisdom personified. Then he says, his eyes were as a flame of fire. The eyes of God are mentioned numerous times in the Bible. Uh, I like to think about Second uh, Chronicles over here where he says his eyes ran to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. The eyes of God represent the omniscience of the Lord, that he sees all and knows all, but they also eyes of fire. He sees not only all the righteous, at my friends, he sees all the wicked and also all the evil. And then it says, his feet were like unto fine brass, if burned in a furnace. This would remind the, the people there that day, again, the offering made in the tabernacle. The very first uh, uh, article of furniture was the brazen altar, and that's where the sacrifice was made. That's where the sacrifice was slain. And the blood, you know, came forth. So his feet like fine brass. This is a picture, my friends, of Jesus Christ in a glorified state, but in his judge-slash-kingly uh, position. So here's his feet. And then his voice as a sound. Think about his voice again. He already spoke about his voice being great. But here's his voice as a sound of many waters. If you've ever been to uh, Niagara Falls... You can hear the, or any big waterfall, and you're trying to say you're trying to find a waterfall. All you gotta do is follow the sound, right? Before you ever find it in the deep forest or in the Smoky Mountains, wherever you may be, you know you might be getting close. You're trying to follow it, but you maybe can't. And all of a sudden, you hear something. You what you hear? You're hearing the water's coming over the fall. Or you go uh, to Niagara Falls and listen to that sound. He says his voice is the sound of many waters, a roaring sound a sound that would get your attention. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and he's going to tell us a little bit later on, those seven stars are the seven angels to the seven churches. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. In the book of Hebrews chapter 4, we find him telling us in verse 12, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharp than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the sunder of soul and spirit, and a zerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. That's the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ. He out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. A two-edged sword can cut in, you know, either way you use it. And so that's what's coming out of his mouth. What, what do you find in the book of um, Ephesians chapter 6 on the armor of God? Put on the whole armor of God. And part of that armor is what? The sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. In the Old Testament, the sun, the literal natural sun, is an image or a picture of God in many different ways. I'll just use one here. In the book of Malachi, chapter 4, verse 2, it says, unto those that fear his name, shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings. Uh, isn't, it, isn't it wonderful to be on a cloudy, drizzled day when it's just uh, chilly and cold and all of that, and then all of a sudden the sun pops out. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? And you you can tell the difference. You can just feel the warm rays of the sun. The the sun is such a blessing, is it not? It gives us light. It gives us warmth. It gives us heat. And in the Old Testament, it was a picture of God. And it says, and the Son of Righteous spelled with a capital S here, not S-O-M, but S-U-M. And the Son of Christ shall arise with healing in his wings. And I'm telling you, after spending three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, he arose with healing in his wings. And sin was put away and death was conquered, my friends. And the Lord's people now have been delivered from that prison of, of despair by the knowledge of the Son of God that He's victorious and we're victorious with Him. And you know, the sun is a blessing. But if you go out in the middle of July and August when it's 100 degrees and you don't have sunglasses and you don't have a long sleeve shirt, One thing or another, that same sun that felt so great in April and May can burn you if you're not careful. And his countenance, this is his countenance. was like the sun shining in its strength. Midday, when the sun is shining its brightest. It would be very unwise to try to look into that sun, you know, it just would be. It could do irreparable damage to your eyes because it's so bright and so brilliant. And that sun is just a type of the brilliance of the Son of God when he shines in his strength. When he saw this, he says, I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Now John didn't die. But he fell at his feet as dead because of the awe of the situation of just what he saw. See, that's what's missing a lot in the world today is reverence for God. Reverence for God. Uh, You know, in the book of Isaiah chapter 6, it says, The year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And when Isaiah saw that, you know what he said? He said, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. That's how it made him feel Uh, in that particular time when you see God in all his glory and all his majesty, my friends, uh, he ought to bring an all about you and your feelings and and make you see how little you are and how poor you are and how undone you are. And you're nothing, just nothing in the sight of God by human nature. But the other hand, you are a prize to the Lord because you're a child of his his love, you're a child of grace, you're an heir promise. And you uh, you can feel good about that, you see. He fell as if he was dead. Go read the book of Daniel chapter 10. Same experience. Read Ezekiel chapter 1, the last verse of chapter 1. Same thing. When Ezekiel saw all those great visions of God, he fell down at the feet of God as if he were dead. See, the problem most people have is see man too high and God too low. If you see yourself any than just the grass of the field, the dust of the earth, you see yourself too high. If you see yourself any lower see God any lower than the triumphant Jesus Christ sitting upon his throne in glory, who spoke this world into existence, who rules and reigns the universe like Nebuchadnezzar saw him. And he said, All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, but God works his will among the army of heaven, among all the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or saith in him, What doest thou? This is how John felt. This is the apostle John, and he fell at the feet of Jesus as if he were dead. What did the Lord do? Or oh, the Lord so gracious and kind laid his right hand upon him. <laughs> I can always remember how comforting it was to have my dad's hand and put my hand in his hand to lead me along the way. or oh, his hand just to, just to feel it, his hand was such a blessing, generally speaking. There were times he used his hand for other reasons. Uh, But anyway, generally speaking, he just lays his hand, right hand, on John. He says, fear not. If you want to look up the expression, fear not, set aside several hours. It'll take you several hours to find all those fear nots in the Bible. This is the last one. The very first one is in Genesis 15, when God speaks to Abraham. When he came back from the battle of the kings, he says, Abraham, fear not. I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Here he puts his hand upon him and says, fear not. He said, I'm he that liveth, was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of hell and death. You don't have to fear life because Jesus Christ is the living one. Jesus said in John 10, I've come that you might have life, you might have it more abundantly. In John chapter 14, verse 19, the Lord and Jesus Christ said, because I live, ye shall live. You don't have to fear life because you've got the living one that's taking care of you, and watching over you. You don't have to fear death. You don't have to fear death because the Lord Jesus Christ experienced death. The Lord Jesus Christ conquered death. You go to Hebrews 2:14 and 15 it says, As the children partake of flesh and blood, he likewise took part of the same that through death he might destroy him, have the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through all their lifetime were subject to fear for the fear of death, and they were subject to bondage, they've been delivered. So you don't have to fear death. And you don't have to fear eternity, because the eternal one has given you eternal life and life and death. Cannot separate you from the love of God. You remember one of these seven churches. And one day somebody says, I need your attention. I got a book. I need to read it to you. It just came from the hands of the Apostle John. We believe it's delivered unto us by God through John. I only have one copy. I'm going to read it to you. He begins reading. When he gets through the first chapter, 21 to follow. When he gets through the first chapter, how are you going to feel? You've read about one who has loved you and washed you as white as snow. You've read about one who has made you a king and priest unto God. You've read about one who says, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. You've read about one who says, I am he that is and was and is to come You've read about one that's going to walk in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. He's going to be in the middle of it. You've read about one in his glorified state. You've read about one that says, fear not, I'm he that liveth. I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Evermore sounds pretty good to me. <laughs> if he lives forevermore, you will live forevermore with God, my friends. I've just got a feeling those seven people in those seven churches begin to feel a little bit better. I believe they got to feel a little bit stronger. I think they got a little bit encouraged. I come to church for various reasons, brother. First of all, the Lord just told me to. He says, you need to be in the house of God on the first day of the week. that's That's all I need to know right there. But I have learned by experience when I come to God's house with God's people and feel the presence of God. When I leave that place, brother, I feel better than I did before I got there. I feel more lifted up, more encouraged, more edified, more built up in the Holy Faith. How about you today? I've never been to the house, I believe I can say this honestly and truthfully, that I've never been to God's house, brother, and left there feeling worse than I did before I got there. I like to have the assurance, my wife and I have been married 53 years plus. And when she tells me she loves me, I know she means it. She's been telling me that for 53 years. Somebody says, aren't you tired of that? No, I am not. I am happy to hear those words every single day. I love you. And you know what she expects me to say? I love you. I don't know how many times I've told her that throughout our 53-year marriage, but I intend to keep telling her that for the next 53 years or close to it. (laughs) Well, anyway, these churches had to be tremendously encouraged after just hearing the very first chapter read to him of this marvelous book, what you got, Brother Jim?